Who are the key players on Biden's climate team? Climate One conversations feature all aspects of the climate emergency, the individual and the systemic, the exciting and the scary, people in power and those disempowered. I'm Greg Dalton. We now have a president that I believe is, has full-throated the, the effort of addressing climate and his engagement in it, and I'm really excited about it. It is by far and away the most aggressive climate plan of any presidency. Can it get better? Sure. It's really putting the nation on a war footing to avoid the next pandemic, and the next pandemic will be exacerbated by climate crisis, uh, and the way to, to, to get ahead of it is to prepare and make the decisions now. Former EPA Administrator Gina McCarthy and former Secretary of State John Kerry are two of the climate leaders that President Joe Biden has tapped to put his ambitious climate plan into action. Today, we'll revisit conversations with McCarthy, Kerry, and other Climate One guests from the past year who have prominent roles in the Biden-Harris administration. But first, a look back at the early days of the 2020 presidential campaign. In the spring of 2019, there were still more than two dozen candidates jockeying for position in the crowded Democratic field. But at the time, only Washington Governor Jay Inslee made climate the main theme of his bid. He dropped out of the race a few months later, but he can arguably be credited with helping to push the climate crisis into the campaign conversation, onto the debate stage, and higher on the agenda for candidate Joe Biden. In May of 2019, just one day before he announced his ambitious climate plan, Inslee joined us for a live Climate One event where he gave us a sneak preview. So we ought to believe that we can have 100% clean electricity. That ought to be uh, something that we can tell Americans that, that they can have. We ought to have a way to decarbonize our transportation system. We know that is possible driving electric cars. I drove a hydrogen fuel cell car the other day around the, the Capitol uh, quadrant. We know that we need to or want to save literally billions of dollars on our heating and cooling costs. So we need to improve the efficiency of our buildings. And my approach will be unique for several reasons. Number one, it will be multi-sectoral. I will address each one of these sectors with a specific proposal on how to deal with that specific proposal. Number two, it will be based uh, on a real-life scenario where we have really looked at the possibilities in each sector. Number three, it will be based on successes that we have had in my state. This is not unicorns and rainbows. It is based on successes that we can show that I've actually delivered. Number four, we will have somebody who believes in concrete ideas, not just airy, uh, dreamlike uh, trance states. And we will actually put concrete policies proposal. And, and, and last, and I think, frankly, the most important thing in this is to elect a president with a personal, uh, compelling, passionate commitment to this mission statement. You know, everybody's got a to-do list, right, on your refrigerator. This cannot be just on the next president's to-do list, because if it's not job one, it won't get done. Washington Governor Jay Inslee speaking at Climate One about his presidential run as the climate candidate in May of 2019. We also talked about the importance of transitioning away from fossil fuels into a clean energy economy without leaving anyone behind. Look, the people who work in these industries, great people, hardworking people, we should embrace them and help them through this transition. We're going to have a transition 
in this period to a decarbonized economy. There are two things we have to do, not one thing, but two things we have to do in that transition. Uh, one, we have to break the, the bondage of, of the federal government to the fossil fuel industry. And that's where guys like me come in who are willing to fight that bondage politically. Um, it's also why we have to get rid of the filibuster so we can finally pass climate change legislation in the U.S. Senate. That is absolutely a predicate to success. But the other thing we have to do is to make sure we embrace the families that have worked in some of these, these older technologies in the fossil fuel industry. Because these are good Americans, we need to respect them and care for them and help them through this transition. That's a just transition. Just transition. You talk about a just transition. You've been traveling the country. You've seen people affected by wildfires, which right. ravaged the West, floods. Yeah. When those things happen, people who don't have insurance, people who have less, the least amount of financial resources to bounce back. Yeah. What should the government do? Because I interviewed uh, Governor Christine Todd Whitman once. She said, Uncle Sam cannot continue to be writing $60 billion checks yeah. after these disasters. What's well, the, the first thing we need to do is stop forest fires from raging and destroying us, which means we've got to stop climate change. That's the first job of government. But we do need to help these communities. We're going to have to, just from a community standpoint. Uh, I visited both Paradise, California, and I drove through at night, 25,000 people. And it was like a post-apocalypse Hollywood movie. I went to Seminole Springs and talked to people with mobile homes, and the people with mobile homes usually are sort of uninsured, and they lost everything in these communities. So it's just heartbreaking. Uh, I was in Hamburg, Iowa a few weeks ago, a town It was founded in 1858. It had never been flooded before, and now it was under five, six, seven feet of water, and, and about half of it destroyed. So I know firsthand the pain of climate change, and I've seen it throughout the United, United States. I do believe that we have to focus, while we're going through this effort to defeat climate change, to focus on the first victims, which are, as I've talked about, frequently people in poverty, frequently people, communities of color, indigenous communities. We need to help them with their utility bills. For instance, in my 100% clean electrical grid, we have a provision to help lower-income people with their utility bills. We want to focus our infrastructure spending uh, with the victimized uh, communities first. And if we play our cards right, we will have a more just country at the same time that we have a healthier country. And I think we're capable of doing that. Washington Governor Jay Inslee in 2019 when he was running for president. Later in the program, an audience member pressed Inslee further on how the next administration should go about rebuilding and transforming America's infrastructure to make it more resilient and energy efficient. Well, one of the things when we say infrastructure, I think one of the important things to note is that traditionally we, when we said the word infrastructure, we immediately think of bridges and highways, right? That's been sort of our idea about infrastructure. I think now we have to expand that by a factor of three, because infrastructure now has to include our utility systems, our water systems that are on the verge of collapse, our transmission systems of water. And uh, we have to think of infrastructure much more broadly. The third aspect of that is we have to think of infrastructure as, as a critical part of the climate change plan. We have to find a way to do that that is the most uh, uh, well-targeted and reasonable way to get the biggest bang for our buck. 
I'll just mention some of the things we know we need. We need better transmission systems to be able to wheel renewable energy from where the sun shines and the wind blows to where we're using that electrical distribution or that electrical energy. We know we have to have massive expansions of our, of our electrical storage capacity because we do need to maximize the utility of renewable intermittent energy systems. This is why I've been so committed to R&D to improve the capacity of that, but then we have to wait, have to, wait to finance it and allow utilities and other companies actually uh, to finance it. Then the granddaddy of, of, and grandmother of them all, which is our building infrastructure, which is going to require very significant investment in, in that infrastructure from a variety of sources. But I would point out when we do this, and it's important on infrastructure when we talk about this, one of the challenges I have found in the clean energy discussion is a lot of people think of it, oh, that's just for the physicists and the computer scientists and you know, the people who design solar cells. No, 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 no. This is for carpenters, teamsters, IBW members, plumbers, sheet metal workers. These are the folks who are going to be rebuilding our infrastructure. And that is why this is so accessible as a job creation engine in the United States. Washington Governor Jay Inslee, who set the bar for Democratic presidential candidates, including Joe Biden. After the break, past Climate One conversations with leaders Biden is counting on to put his climate plan into action, including former Secretary of State John Kerry. What a lot of people ignore, unfortunately, is that here in the United States, we are currently spending vast sums of taxpayer money in order just to clean up after the impacts of climate change. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're revisiting my conversations with climate leaders recorded before they joined the Biden-Harris administration. Gina McCarthy served as chief of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency in President Obama's second term. Now she is President Biden's top climate advisor in the White House. McCarthy joined us last fall prior to Biden's election. I began by asking her what lessons can be drawn from the failure of Barack Obama and Joe Biden to get a national climate plan in place when they were in office together and how President Biden might handle things differently this time around. You know, one of the things that that thankfully I think Joe Biden did uh, when he really was getting the nod for his nomination and before that happened is he spent a lot of time with environmental justice advocates. You know, he he really is a, a person who was uh, engaged somewhat in climate, but but it I don't think it was as yet sort of ingrained into him. Well, it is now, <laughs> you know, because they personalize this for him. And he's a very personally wonderful human being uh, just from knowing him. And and he so it, the lesson is is that for me, has always been don't talk about climate as a planetary problem. Don't don't actually dissect it from all the other systemic challenges we have with conventional pollution and with systemic racism that has led to so many communities having disproportionate impact. And 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 th- and then make sure you talk about it in relevant terms. You know, I think way too much us green groups 
um, really just talk about we, the only thing we care about is birds and bunnies who are lovely, but but really we're all talking about human beings and our human lives and, and it needs to be related to families. It needs to be related to on-the-ground improvements. So my hope is that instead of running to now big big solutions that don't dedicate real benefits to to black and brown, Hispanic, indigenous communities, first and foremost, that those no longer are the thing to shoot for. We need two firsts. <laughs> I don't just want greenhouse gases. I want fossil fuels gone. I want fossil fuels out of products. I don't want to help fossil fuel industry to, to extend their life. I want them to recognize that this is bringing down communities, most importantly, environmental justice communities. And the best thing about Biden's plan is he centers justice and equity, and he, and he indicates and commits to 40% of the investments that we need to make to boost us out of our economic doldrums are actually going to be invested in environmental justice communities. So, so between the time he started campaigning for this presidency and, and the time he was nominated, we now have a president that I believe is, has full-throated the, the effort of addressing climate and his engagement in it. And I'm really excited about it. It is by far and away the most aggressive climate plan of any presidency. Can it get better? Sure. You're sitting with three women advocates who are going to demand better, but we'll always do that because it's never going to be enough because we got to act and do it all now. When I spoke with Gina McCarthy last year, she was head of the NRDC Action Fund. We discussed if it was enough for well-meaning people to throw money at environmental and social justice issues while still keeping the underlying market structures in place and maintaining their own comfortable distance from the problems. No, no, I think life, I think life is changing. And, you know, the, the reason why we're seeing people my age on the streets is probably because we were given the gift of having grandchildren. <laughs> And so I'm not now worried about my sacrifice. I am worried about handing to them a future that I'm going to be proud of. And I've worked my entire life for this. And if you think I wouldn't really talk turkey with some of these older people who think you can still remain comfortable and that you can sort of position yourself to get a little done, but don't we have much meaning in my life? It's just not right. You know, I wanted to have meaning in my life. I am sick and tired of the embarrassment of systemic racism. And, and yes, I'm uncomfortable about all the change I need to do as quickly as people are demanding at NRDC and other places. Of course it's uncomfortable, but we got to embrace it, right? This is a time for change. And the, most, it, the only thing that, I can, that gets me up in the morning is to know that we are so bad off that change is essential. And that we can fix this if everybody's voice is heard. And that if nobody speaks for somebody else, but we speak in unity together. And if we can get that done, you know, I love the idea that, that people who have been comfortable sitting in Congress for 40 years getting used to this little march of, of really pokey people Right. If they if they just get a, you know, a sense that they can't be comfortable anymore, that that having this 40 years doesn't give them any benefit. And in fact, if they haven't figured it out by now, they're not going to hang around. I really think that's great. 
You know what I call that, Greg? And you'll figure this out. It's called democracy. <laughs> you know, if you don't do the will of the people and instead you want to maintain things as they are because it benefits you or because you don't think you contributed to the problem, then I'm sorry. It's just not working anymore. So we got to get comfortable being uncomfortable and we got to stop trying to make it go away in a flash and really make people go away in a flash out of government who haven't figured out that we don't need little steady progress, but we need big leaps. We need those to be doable. We need them to bring people behind. We need them to shift jobs, not leave workers behind. We need labor engaged. We just have to be smart enough to recognize that this is a social system where you, you fix the system, not a single thing in it. You fix it all at once. And, and we can figure that out. This is not rocket science. The new climate push threatens fossil fuel companies, which give millions in campaign cash to congressional Republicans and, to a lesser extent, Democrats. Throughout her career as a government regulator, Gina McCarthy has often locked horns with those energy producers. Well, the fossil fuel companies are just literally shameless, to, to be honest with you. So they'll never go away. I think one of the biggest challenges we have to face, and it was a challenge that was pretty much front and center in the Green New Deal and ends up being a significant sort of uh, push point in the Biden in the Biden plan is that is that you we've these Democrats are worried about the economy in their states. We have to acknowledge that we're worried about the economy in their states. I'm worried about jobs. That's why it's if it's a systemic issue, you worry about the economy and jobs. It's not like we want to shut down all of the, the coal mining and just leave people to their own devices. We're talking about a just transition. So will that make them happy? Maybe not. But they have to get over the fact that the world is changing. It's just how. And if you don't want a world that is going to change and shut everything down, then we have to talk about transitioning the world we have to a new system. This plastics issue drives me crazy. If anything drives me crazy, it's sort of this one, because the fossil fuel industry is sitting under the radar screen as if the problem with plastics wasn't theirs. It, the, the reason plastics don't go away is they're fossil fuels in another form. And the industry, as soon as they realized they might be phasing out of some part of the power sector, they started building huge plastics factories. Where? In Cancer Alley. Be, because these people need jobs. Nobody needs a new plastics factory. Everybody needs a job, Right. And so it's just the, the shamelessness of this. But the other issue that I want to hit is this, you know, this, we are overtaken now by people who just talk about individual freedoms. It's this whole mask thing, right? As if they're exerting their own personal freedom. You know, the, the United States was built in our, certainly our regulatory structure was built on the fact that every human being has a right to air. Clean air, clean water, clean land, a safe place to live, a house over their heads, good food to be able to eat. That's individual freedom. Individual freedom isn't about masquerading by getting rid of regulations that are solely in place because you stop other people from having those fundamental rights. And so you have to be regulated. See, so you have... 
So this is my life here. I don't regulate to add burden. I regulate to allow people to have their lives. Because otherwise, how is a single individual or community going to stand up to a coal producer or company in their midst if it wasn't the, the government stepping in and doing its job to protect people? So this whole sort of bastardization of the idea of individual freedom is really behind so much of the challenges we have today. You have no right to kill other people. You have no right to do that. Gina McCarthy, we used to hear a lot about carbon pricing. Some people, that is the holy grail, the main way, do that, and everything else falls in place. We don't hear about it as much now. How central is carbon pricing? I, I am praying that, that people realize that that was yesterday's uh, idea. And today, it's all about doing something that we can make sure that everybody benefits from. I, I, I've never agreed with a carbon price. I don't think life is that easy that I can find one solution. It guarantees nothing about protecting human beings where they live. And it doesn't actually do the trick to get rid of the other pollutants that always come along with fossil fuels. So uh, it is not my thing. I think if you look at the cast of characters that are pushing for it, you may get a good sense that maybe they're not the ones that really are the ones you want to listen to. So I'm not into those things. I want to do things on the ground to improve people's lives today as, as part of a system of getting at climate change. And it doesn't mean I want little actions. It means I want big ones that actually matter, but not what I consider to be potentially false promises. Gina, you say that, you know, talking about this planetary and these huge ginormous numbers, I've been doing this a long time. I don't know what a megawatt or a gigawatt is. You know, how, how should people talk about climate in a way that's, that's real? I think in ways that's relevant to the person they're talking to, really. I like to just talk about it as, you know, uh, as, as choices. You know, do we want a clean energy future and what's that's going to do for me? You know, how is that going to help me today to do that? And how is it going to be the, the way in which if you invest in it, you're going to you know, drive jobs of the future. You're going to create innovation that's going to provide leadership to the U.S., and that leadership is going to spread uh, to the rest of the world, that it's our obligation to think about continuing to move forward. And for the most part, I, I really focus a lot on the health impacts because in my world, have it has have in government for as long as I have, I know that the thing that we all have in common is we want our families to be healthy. And really, if fundamentally, this is the best health choice and it brings with it you know, all of the benefits that come with a clean energy economy, as well as taking care of that pesky little climate problem, then, I, then I, I, it's really hard, I think, to deflect that. And it's really enticing to want to think about life differently. Um, I think right now, Greg, I don't know about you, but we are just so beaten down with problems that I think it's, it's really our job to tell people that there's a future there for us. And that that future has to be, you know, the one that we invest in, you know, a future that's going to bring everybody involved. And when we start doing that, people will come. Uh, people will come. If we'll build it. They will come. Another another movie. 
I spoke with former U.S. EPA Administrator Gina McCarthy last September. President Biden recently appointed her as a top climate advisor in the White House. McCarthy is tasked with coordinating efforts across the entire federal government to drastically and quickly lower U.S. greenhouse gas emissions. Another climate veteran on the Biden team is John Kerry, former U.S. Senator and Secretary of State. Kerry's newly created position is United States Special Presidential Envoy for Climate. Now that the United States is back in the Paris Climate Agreement, his job is to convince other countries that the United States is serious about cutting global carbon emissions and prod them to do more. Kerry joined me in July of 2020 while Donald Trump was still in office. Secretary Kerry, welcome to Climate One. U.S. carbon emissions are forecast to drop 7.5% this year. That's about the rate of decline needed to meet the global Paris Climate Accord. How can those commitments be made without the economy going off a cliff like Wile E. Coyote in the old cartoons? Well, the commitment is made if you if you make a transition and begin to do the things necessary to not make this the result of a catastrophe, but to make it part of everyday life. The bet in Paris was that people were going to begin immediately to be able to make that transition. And for the first two years after Paris, $358 million a year, billion dollars, was invested in alternative renewable energy. So for the first time ever, more money began to shift away from fossil fuel and into sustainable energy. If we had stayed on that track and the United States had continued to lead, we would be in a position now to begin to see where you would meet uh, that point where these could be sustainable reductions in five years, six years, 10 years, by bringing online uh, uh, smart grids, uh, the capacity to send energy from one part of the country to the other, beginning to transition out of coal into alternative uh, energy sources, large solar fields, wind, wind farms, uh, hydrogen fuel uh, mixed with uh, uh, hydro and geothermal and other things. But none of that planning, none of it, has taken place with the hand of, uh, of uh, the partnership between government and the private sector. And so, in fact, the opposite has happened. We have a president who pulled out of the agreement, giving license to a bunch of countries in the world that were reluctant to join anyway, to go back to being reluctant. And so the people we dragged to the table in Paris have become, you know, scofflaws. And, and, they're, and in fact, no, no nation in the world was on track to meet the Paris Agreement until coronavirus hit and everything shut down. Now, obviously, that's not the way anybody envisioned doing it. Uh, we need to do it because we're shifting out of the polluting fuels. And we haven't been doing that fast enough or in a concerted way. The way we will do it is by planning, by enlisting the private sector to become part of the transition, by creating a, a, a framework within which citizens across the country can afford to go buy electric vehicles, get the auto manufacturers to come in and cooperate and, and show you their plans for a faster transition out of internal combustion into electric, building out a program from the federal government to assist in building out the infrastructure necessary for the charging. I mean, it's, it's planning. It's really putting the nation on a war footing to avoid the next pandemic. And the next pandemic will be exacerbated by climate crisis. 
uh, and the way to, to, to get ahead of it is to prepare and make the decisions now. During our conversation last summer, John Kerry and I discussed the role of China in the climate crisis. Two Republican elders, James Baker and George Schultz, had recently published an article noting that China had become the top exporter of wind turbines, solar panels, and batteries, the building blocks of a clean energy economy. Secretary Schultz has since passed away. I asked Kerry to weigh in on the Republican response to the article and the growing rift in the Republican Party. Well, let me just say, first of all, you should add that China is also the largest exporter of climate change emissions now. They're the dirtiest fuel provider in the world. They provide 50% of all the coal-fired power plants in the world are Chinese, and Chinese are now funding the building of new coal-fired plants through their One Belt, One Road initiative. So we have a major, major issue to raise with China Uh, We would like to cooperate. They should be uh, able to cooperate. We did cooperate in Paris, but this administration not only doesn't try to go proactively to do that, they're moving in the opposite direction here at home by unleashing much greater levels of of, uh, pollutants into the air, cutting back on the automobile restrictions, cutting back on the pollution uh, restrictions that existed. So that has to be the predicate, and that's part of the reason why that party today won't listen to George Shultz and Jim Baker the way they ought to. Uh, Jim Baker and George Shultz uh, are bona fide conservatives. Uh, this new group, I don't think, are really conservatives at all. Uh, they're radical anti-government uh, disruptors who really want to just pull the system down. They're against any kind of government. Many of them are libertarians. Uh, and they want to see uh, no action whatsoever on those fronts uh, because their definition of freedom is the freedom to be able to pollute, to do the things they want to do. Uh, Jim Baker and, and uh, George Schultz have a great idea, which is pricing carbon. And the answer is it is one of the single most effective ways that we could begin to reduce emissions by properly pricing carbon in terms of its economic impact and cost to all of us as citizens. What what a lot of people ignore, unfortunately, is that here in the United States, we are currently spending vast sums uh, of taxpayer money in order just to clean up after the impacts of climate change. We had three storms two years ago that cost our taxpayers $265 billion just to clean up. Maria. Irma and Harvey. And and so Sir Nicholas Stern has written a very important book about the economics of climate change, and he makes it crystal clear it is far, far more expensive to pay for inaction than to take actions. It makes sense to invest in a whole bunch of things, including innovation and research. We should have the largest single uh, commitment ever in the history of our country to R&D for all of our colleges and universities, our labs, everybody would be in the hunt for major battery storage. The day we win the battle of battery storage and get it into weeks, literally two weeks, three weeks, we are gonna win the battle. We've won the battle of climate because the minute you have that storage, then you can wholesale uh, stopgap the problem of baseload for companies, factories, They've got to know that their their factory, their production 
is not going to be interrupted by the lack of wind or the lack of sun. You've got to have the storage to provide that continuity. The day we have that, you're going to see a massive shift out of fossil fuel and a massive shift. Now, it doesn't mean fossil fuel goes away. Within everybody, within the scientific analysis of where we need to be to have equilibrium and solve the problem of climate, there is a carbon budget. We will still have carbon. We will still be using oil for various things. Uh, we will still need some natural gas as a, as a bridge fuel. But the long-term energy future of America is not going to be written in fossil fuel. There's a minister of, of oil in Saudi Arabia who in the 1970s famously said that the stone age didn't end because we ran out of stones and the oil age will not end because we run out of oil. Joe Biden has said he has a plan to get to net zero emissions by 2050. He's not taking money from the fossil fuel industry, but his plan is among the more conservative of the Democratic plans put forward during this campaign. Is Joe Biden and his climate plan ambitious enough to meet the task? Yes, uh, but it's going to be more ambitious from what I understand. I think he's planning to uh, add some initiatives that I think over the course of the campaign he began to believe make a lot of sense. Uh, and so I have total confidence in, in uh, Vice President Biden's readiness and desire uh, to move forward very, very rapidly in the climate sector. And I think he wants to beat 2050. I know he's not satisfied that 2050, you know, that's an outside goal. His goal is sooner than that, if possible. And I think he believes it is possible, but he's going to put his ducks in line as he sort of decides exactly how to go forward. Former Secretary of State John Kerry spoke with me last July by Zoom. At the time, we were still getting used to the new normal of holding meetings and conducting interviews online instead of in person. Air travel had pretty much ground to a halt as country after country reported increased coronavirus breakouts, borders were closed, and quarantines were put in place. It was hard to imagine that Skype and Zoom could ever completely replace actual FaceTime, but Kerry saw an environmental upside. I mean, airplanes, I think, are going to they're going to find a, a different source of power, a different fuel, biofuels, whatever it's going to be, maybe even hydrogen, who knows? But we will get to, we'll solve these problems. That I am convinced of. We, we know that human beings are contributing to this climate crisis. We also know human beings can solve the problem. We have many of the solutions right in front of us now, and we will find the, the rest of those that are needed. I have total confidence in our ingenuity we just need the willpower. It's not a question of, of, of lack of capacity. It's just willpower, readiness, commitment. And, and we need to make that commitment. United States Special Presidential Envoy for Climate, John Kerry. He spoke with us in July of 2020. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're revisiting my conversations with people before they joined President Biden's climate team. Coming up, Brian Deese and Sonia Uggerwall. One of the things that makes me the most optimistic is that we are, have clean energy technologies that can be deployed at speed and scale and are being deployed at speed and scale. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. We've been hearing from some of the members of President Biden's new climate team. 
John Kerry pointed out the need for major investments in innovation and research, a task that will be spearheaded by Sonia Ugarwal, Biden's senior advisor for climate policy and innovation. I talked with her in early 2019 about climate change solutions around the world. At the time, she was vice president of energy at the consulting firm Energy Innovation. In her overview of the clean energy transition, Ugarwal began with a view from California. Here we have a suite of policies which really look at each of the different sources of greenhouse gas emissions, whether it's power plants or factories, cars, buildings, agriculture, and have uh, set targets and put together really detailed policies to move us to a, a lower carbon system overall here. So I would say, honestly, California is doing quite well. There's also, of course, um, quite a few other countries that are really moving quickly. Um, I would say also in Europe, if you look at Spain and Ireland, there's a lot of progress there. But uh, it's been pretty amazing to see how the market has taken off to really bring down the cost of clean energy and what impact that's making in a lot of different places around the world. You did some early research on McKinsey cost curves and economics of various energy systems. Um, how do you think nuclear fits in in the market today in the mix? Sure. So I guess I'll just start by saying um, it's absolutely right that we have to think about reliability and making sure that um, electricity is delivered affordably and reliably to everybody who needs to rely on it. Um, and I would say that as um, we look at r wind and solar, which are only available when the wind is blowing and the sun is shining, there's a huge number of technologies and new ways of operating the power system that can deliver that electricity just as reliably and as uh, regularly as um, what are sort of traditionally baseload dispatched power plants like nuclear or coal. So I guess I would just say, um, starting there, uh, it is absolutely possible to put together a portfolio of zero carbon resources um, that looks many different ways and uh, delivers uh, uh, electricity reliably. So then looking at cost uh, comparisons, um, I think it's been really interesting to see some of the very exciting uh, technology neutral auctions that have been happening across the United States and in other parts of the world over the last few years, especially as coal plants have started to retire. We're seeing some, some numbers that I think are kind of nuts, honestly, not just for solar coming in or wind coming in, which are extremely low cost and have come down, let's see, solar is 90% cheaper than it was 10 years ago, wind is 70% cheaper, batteries are 80% cheaper than they were. But that's kind of the key point to here, especially in this context of dispatchability and balancing the grid. Solar plus storage and wind plus storage in some of the most recent auctions are coming in at costs that are below the ongoing operating costs of existing coal plants. And that's just a crazy time if you think about it in a, in a system that has traditionally moved very slowly. It's, um, it's a pretty amazing moment. Um, and we've, we've seen the evidence of this. Um, you know, these are just the, the, the most recent auction results, but this has been kind of an inexorable decline over the last decade, and we're seeing more and more renewable energy capacity get built um, here in the United States as a result of that. 
I'm optimistic about the future, um, and I think that one of the things that makes me the most optimistic is that we are, have clean energy technologies that can be deployed at speed and scale and are being deployed at speed and scale. Of course, we have to go faster. Um, a statistic that I heard recently was that um, to stay within two degrees, if we started in 2000, we would need to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 3% per year. If we started now, we have to reduce them by 10% per year. This is global. And then if we wait 10 more years, we have to start reducing greenhouse gases at a rate of 30% per year. Now, that's a staggering statistic to me. Um, we are not currently reducing greenhouse gas emissions, so we do need solutions that can happen at speed and scale. But if we're in such a great time where um, people are living longer, there's access to new information, there is new technology available to us, I think we're in a better position than we ever have been to get that going fast. And we're seeing some really interesting um, fast-scaling uh, resources happening around the U.S. and around the world. Um, China is building nuclear power plants. Texas is building three gigawatts of solar and five gigawatts of wind within the next couple of years, which that's, you know, a typical nuclear power plant is about a gigawatt. Clean energy consultant Sonia Agarwal on the Climate One stage in February of 2019. She has just been chosen to join the Biden climate team as senior advisor to the president for climate policy and innovation. In her new position, Agarwal will be overseeing national efforts to decarbonize our energy industry. Back in 2019, one of our live audience members had a question for Agarwal about what that might look like. This may be a little more in-depth than you typically think, but, but you guys are pretty wide-ranging. So if you owned a, a gas and electric utility, call it you're a director on that or CEO, whatever role you want, what would you do to decarbonize? Um, so I would first take a look at my existing fleet of generation resources to understand where I'm coming from, right? So what kind of system am I operating in? I would look at um, over time, are we going to see a lot more electricity demand in my region? Um, then I would uh, start to uh, think about putting out... Uh, technology-neutral auctions for um, whichever zero-carbon resource can come in to provide electricity that we are going to need um, over the next 10, 20, 30-year period. I would also make a very clear public statement about um, what uh, emission reduction target I have. Um, the sooner the better, and zero is the right answer. So um, then start to put together a portfolio of resources that can deliver that electricity over time, um, at least cost and reliably. Of course, I would also, this perhaps is a little nerdy again, but um, looking at new tools for how you think about system management is really um, important right now because we are moving into an era where we have a lot more variable resources on the generation side. We have a lot more opportunities for deploying resources more flexibly, um, for thinking about how do we smartly electrify everything? How do we make sure that um, people can charge their cars at home? and uh, feel comfortable with their heating and cooling um, and do so in a way that's going to be the most efficient for the individual and for the system and as an integrated whole. Sonia, I want to ask you, you're the optimist. Do you ever have moments of fear or doubt where you say, boy, 
this is scary. I don't know if we can do this at the scale. You have moments of like, maybe my friends are all alarmist and it's not as bad as they think. <laughs> um, definitely. I mean, this is a problem with quite uh, um, overwhelming magnitude, especially looking at those statistics around how quickly we need to um, really start seeing results in bringing down greenhouse gas emissions. Um, I sort of think of it as, you know, um, the how 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 far we have to bring them down and how quickly we have to bring them down. That means that we need really to be working with everything that we're putting out there now has to be zero carbon, and we have to be letting all the all the technologies compete to 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 get out there as quickly as possible that are zero carbon. So yes, I mean it's a the, the magnitude is overwhelming, but I also have a lot of faith in humanity. Sonia Uggerwall is now Senior Advisor to the President for Climate Policy and Innovation. I'm Greg Dalton. Brian Deese is President Biden's Director of the National Economic Council. When he joined us last April, Deese was still the Global Head of Sustainable Investing for the investment firm BlackRock. We talked about how uncertainty in financial markets created by the COVID pandemic may be diverting money away from renewable energy. Well, look, there's a set of... um immediate and urgent uh, fiduciary elements, particularly when you see the kind of market dislocation um, and liquidity issues that we saw um, in the month of March. But if you step back, I think for for us, we came into this year um, and this pandemic crisis with climate risk is investment risk. And more generally, that we were on the front edge of a, a larger decadal structural shift in investor preferences that really changes, changes and upends a lot of how traditional financial models and traditional financial analysis uh, assesses sustainability risk. And as we look at what's happening in the current environment, it actually gives us a very interesting test case to try to understand some of these convictions and some of these hypotheses that we've, uh, that we've operated with. As we come out of this crisis, I believe that we are going to see key elements of sustainability rise in importance uh, for companies and for uh, governments and regulators as they grapple with the longer term implications of this uh, crisis. A lot more to say about that, but I think that uh, suffice it to say that our perspective and our conviction around the importance of sustainability coming into this crisis is reinforced by what we're seeing. And I think it's going to likely become an even more central part of the conversation going forward. The last point I would make, though, that is connected to a transition is that ultimately the pace of the global low carbon transition will be dictated by the ambition and the effectiveness of government policy globally. Um, and as somebody who spent a, a lot of time working to and, and uh, getting the Paris Agreement agreed to and then entered into force in 2015 and 2016, um, I think you, you look at that framework and you see in it the potential for countries to increasingly increase the ambition of their national policies, their nationally determined commitments, in a way that would signal long-term, the long-term trajectory of how the economy will decarbonize, uh, that would then accelerate massive transformations of capital and shifting of, of, of private capital. Obviously, the state of global policy is not where it needs to be. I think that we will see an acceleration, but the more that that ends up happening too late and in a uncoordinated way that doesn't provide those long-term signals, the more challenging it's going to be uh, for capital to actually move and accelerate this process. 
When I spoke with Deese, it was a turbulent time as the full force of the pandemic was becoming apparent. Black Lives Matter's protests were awakening the country to generations of systemic racial inequities that caused Black and Brown Americans to be unevenly impacted by coronavirus. That turned the conversation to the more personal topic of empathy. If you live in Atlanta today, you're 15% more likely to die from coronavirus than if you live 15 miles outside in the suburbs because the local air quality in Atlanta is bad and it, it exacerbates res respiratory diseases. As we move into the winter in the Southern Hemisphere and we see this crisis extend into emerging market economies, we're going to see the kind of um, disproportionate impact where you see the intersection between air quality and pandemic. We know that the, the intersection between climate change and disease. Uh, it was coronavirus here, but we see the extension of vector-borne illnesses as climates change. And in fact, as habitats uh, and humans start to intersect with each other. Um, and in fact, animal-borne disease uh, or diseases that initiated animals are much more likely to occur and spread as climate change forces people into closer proximity. Uh, and so as a global community, we need to be much more capable of actually preparing and being in front of this. But I would say, you know, to your point about um, a gratitude and empathy, I would add to it urgency because even as we're talking about these sort of how do we get to these longer term issues, the actions that government policymakers, that uh, first responders, that, um, uh, that health professionals and then investors take in the next weeks and months will help to also reinforce whether or not we can come out of this having blunted some of the worst impacts of that or not. So I also, in addition to feeling that gratitude and the sense of connectivity to these larger challenges, I also feel a certain urgency around this, around making sure that we're doing everything we can um, to not have a, uh, the impacts of this crisis, which already will be huge even more as we move into the next phase or phases of this, uh, of this epidemic. This is Climate One. That was Brian Deese last April. He's now director of the National Economic Council in the White House. We've been revisiting my past conversations with Deese and other climate leaders who've joined President Biden's climate team, Sonia Agarwal, John Kerry, and Gina McCarthy. We also heard from Washington governor and former presidential candidate Jay Inslee, whose campaign platform helped sow the seeds for Biden's ambitious climate plan. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review. It really does help advance the climate conversation. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. Steve Fox is director of advancement. Annie Chelsea edited the program. Our audio team is Mark Kirshner, Arnav Gupta, and Andrew Stelzer. Dr. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.